Joining us today on Dialogos Radio and Dialogos Interview Series for our first broadcast of the 2017-2018 season is one of our regular guests, Deborah Berman-Santana, who is a retired professor of geography and ethnic studies at Mills College in Oakland, California. Deborah will speak to us today about the latest that is taking place in Puerto Rico, an island that especially recently has been ravaged on multiple fronts and which presents many similarities with what we're seeing on an ongoing basis in Greece. So, Deborah, welcome back to our program. Thank you. Glad to be here. Let's begin with perhaps the most pressing issue of all, Hurricane Irma and its aftermath. What was the impact of the storm on Puerto Rico and how was the island able to respond? Well, uh, Hurricane Irma, which was, of course, Category 5 uh, uh, hurricane and did major, major damage to the smaller Eastern Caribbean islands, we were very fortunate that the eye did not actually uh, come to, to Puerto Rico. Uh, the major uh, impacts were on the northern and northeastern section and some of our islands. We are archipelago, specifically our island of Culebra, where there was major damage and they're still uh, coming apart. Right now in Puerto Rico, the probably the, the most critical issue is electricity. Uh, there are many downed power lines and damaged posts, and of course it's very uh, mountainous. Uh, a country, so it, it take it takes some time. We can talk more about the politics around that too. There are also in certain areas uh, where, uh, of course, in more poor people live in areas that can more uh, flood prone, or the houses are not as good in shape, and there has been a lot of damage there too. So, uh, but considering the incredible amount of damage that Irma has done in other parts of the Caribbean, I would say that we were pretty fortunate. Now, of course, the storm couldn't have come at a worse time for the island with the economic crisis that Puerto Rico is facing and the severe economic assault that it is dealing with across multiple fronts. Just as Greece has the so-called Troika, Puerto Rico has the so-called Junta, which, of course, is also a historically loaded ward in Greece. What's the latest as far as the austerity measures and, and cuts and economic reforms that the Junta has been imposing or has been attempting to impose in Puerto Rico? Yes, well, the um, United States Congress imposed Fiscal Control Board, which in Spanish is Junta de Control Fiscal, has been in place for a year. Uh, they have on multiple fronts, uh, basically when they do not approve of something in the Puerto Rico government's budget, they say, no, this is not acceptable. You need to cut this, 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 and this. They do not necessarily have information on how best to operate. For example, with the university, uh, the public university of Puerto Rico, they want massive cuts. Uh, they do not even uh, have information on the university. They have not asked for information to see if there must be cuts, where might be the best place to cut. It's just taking the, 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 a block, just basically a machete and chopping it up. However, they have also increased the budget for themselves. Um, the, um, the U.S. Congress bill, the Promesa bill that we talked about last year, uh, directed Puerto Rico to pay 
two million dollars per month for the expenses of the junta. The new budget, the junta inserted that they must be paid five million dollars a month, and of course they use this for all their expenses. They use this to hire dozens of contractors for publicity, for 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 uh, for a um, legal fees, for lobbying, for who knows what. These are all their friends, and and, uh, and they also have created a new. Uh, entity that is basically the entity in charge of seeing how we can privatize and sell off public resources. I believe that um, Schäuble uh, last year or two years ago a, a, um, a created some fund in, in, in Greece to, to basically the privatization fund. Well, this is basically what they, what they inserted to our budget just now. And of course, they're saying that uh, our, our the pensions must be slashed, and the uh, there must be more furloughs of public workers, and must work. And the government of Puerto Rico is going through a, a theater. They're saying, "Oh, we're not going to cut." And we all know that the government of Puerto Rico is not going to really fight this. This is just theater, so that their supporters think that they are fighting the junta. And, of course, on the topic of privatizations, a big issue during the hurricane, of course, was the uh, proposed privatization of Puerto Rico's energy utility. How have the junta and proponents of privatization attempted to use the hurricane and its aftermath to make a case for the privatization of the electric company? Well, interestingly, the case was actually made before the hurricane. For years now, they have been... Uh, uh, also, the the government uh, lackeys who uh, are the managers of the uh, authority, not the actual workers, of course, have been uh, cutting and cutting and cutting and not rehiring and retraining enough people to to work and trying to get contractors to work for less money. And so, and so the infrastructure has been deteriorating. And of course, when people get upset, this is, well, it's because it's public. And if we, it was privatized and we had more competition, it would work out better. The interesting thing is uh, the hurricane was just hit, uh, not even, well, actually a week ago it, that it hit. Um, the interesting thing is that the only reason that we are actually, uh, recovering much more quickly is because it's a complete lie. For example, before the hurricane hit, the um, government head of the authority said, oh, it can take five to six months before we can put this together because the uh, electric energy authority is so bad. Well, here we are a month, uh, a week later, almost all of Puerto Rico is back online. San Juan is interestingly not up completely although the mountain towns are, and the union of workers is claiming that they are deliberately impeding them from finishing in San Juan so that people will still be angry and, 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 and uh, demand privatization. Well, the, the people, this is the most militant union in Puerto Rico, Utier, and uh, they're wonderful. They're, they're really our best, our best union that's left, and they're very, of course, left. And um, they working 16-hour shifts, they are in unbelievable photos if you saw them, and they are working, doing heroic things to get uh, Puerto Rico back online.
So the interesting thing is Irma is actually not been good for the arguments for privatization. <laughs> Just as in Greece, Puerto Rico is being sold the promise of foreign investment and large-scale critical infrastructure projects, which supposedly are meant to foster economic growth and development and recovery on the island. What sorts of projects are being proposed and what would their actual impact likely be? Yes, uh, part of the that PROMESA bill is um, for critical infrastructure energy projects, not for the, um, the distribution infrastructure, but for combustible, the, the energy, the um, or gas or coal or whatever, because that's that's not what we actually need if they actually wanted to do something on the maintenance and the reconstruction of the transmission. That might be helpful, but that's not where the money is. That's not where the profits are. So the critical infrastructure energy projects basically say we want to streamline the permitting process. There are many processes. Also, of course, you were a colony of the United States, so we have their laws and ours. And the process uh, of permits takes years for any massive project because there's environmental issues, there's land use issues, there are many, there are public hearings you have to do. So it takes a few years. They want to streamline it to, I think, 90 days, <laughs> which means, you know, we, you have a project, uh, and we don't, we don't want to tell the public, so we want to get it done as quickly as possible. Also because they want to avoid protests. For example, uh, we, uh, the popular protest has stopped two projects for gasoducts, and this is over the past years, not just now. And, uh, these would be ga gas lines that they would start from natural gas in the south, and they would blast through the mountains. Remember, Puerto Rico is very mountainous. Blast through the mountains and go to the northern side where San Juan is. And we have had civil disobedience. We had legal, our legal teams basically stopped these in the courts and challenged in the courts. We, we prepared testimony for all the public hearings. Well, they want to bring those back, but in course, not allow the public hearings. And they have, the local government has, has passed laws to criminalize civil disobedience. So this is, this is how they intend to do this. They have a, a energy generating project burning garbage to create energy. And we don't even have enough garbage, so the, and they don't say this, but what the project really is, is to burn the garbage all around the Caribbean. And of course it doesn't matter what happens to us because they'd like to get rid of us anyway. We have managed to stop it, but I am sure the, 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 they just, uh, contracted a, coordinator of the critical energy projects. He is a Puerto Rican born, I'm not going to say he's Puerto Rican, Puerto Rican born U.S. military man that they're going to put in charge of putting this together. And I have seen him interviewed several times and they ask him questions and they ask him, he knows nothing. He is completely ignorant. He is just there to facilitate these, this, uh, so that just, just gives you one example. Of course, the gasoducts, I'm sure they have some other things they have been planning, things that they have tried to do before that they could not do because of protests. If they get rid of the protesters, then they can just shove it all through. And, of course, it would be gas projects, coal projects, maybe mining. We have copper. We stopped the copper mining uh, plans uh, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. Maybe that's coming back again. 
Now, having mentioned both mining and coal, recent big news in Greece is the uh, the announced departure of Canadian mining firm Eldorado Gold from the Skouries gold mine in northern Greece, which has been a hotbed of uh, activist activity in recent years due to its environmental impact and its dubious economic benefits, despite being described as the biggest foreign investment in Greece. We're seeing something similar in Puerto Rico with the controversy over a privately owned coal-powered plant and the dumping of the coal ash from this plant. Uh, Tell us about this issue. Yes, well, even though our electric energy authority is public, uh, we do have a few private uh, plants. And, of course, the the bringing in of some of the... the, Energy generating implements are private. For example, we do have a couple of uh, projects of windmills from Siemens. They're uh, looking at, uh, at, uh, Puerto Rico as, I guess, uh, Greece and the Caribbean. And, uh, we have various others. The, in the 1990s, Applied Energy Systems, AES, which is a multinational corporation based in, in the United States, uh, proposed a clean coal, in, I'm saying in quotes, um, plant, in Puerto Rico that was supposed to uh, generate, give more energy generation capacity to Puerto Rico. And of course, it's a myth that Puerto Rico does not have enough energy generating capacity, and that is why our um, energy uh, bills are supposedly high. All right. So that was our argument. I actually participated in the, the campaign to stop them from getting built. Uh, and so what they did is this is in the South Coast, and they brought the local community to one of their clean-looking plants in, in the United States, and they took them out and, you know, basically told them, we'll give you many jobs, and it's very clean. You shouldn't listen to these radicals who are, don't even live in your, in, in, like me, who don't even live in your community, you know. <laughs> so you shouldn't even, they're against everything, right? So um, they finally did get the permits, to build because they promised that they would not dump the coal ash in Puerto Rico. They went and they dumped the, they finally built it in the early 2000s. I think 2004 is when they finally started. And they were dumping the coal ash in the Dominican Republic. What happens in the Dominican Republic? People start getting sick and they do a campaign against them. Eventually, the Dominican government uh, uh, did, did was a trial. They had a settlement, and part of the settlement is that they would stop uh, dumping in the uh, Dominican Republic. Dominic- they are actually in the Dominican Republic. They have other types of plants. They don't have coal plants there. But they still had in the contract that they couldn't dump in Puerto Rico. There were some uh, illegal dumps. Finally, uh, they also had another idea that if they would take some of the ash, you you put water on it, and it becomes something called Agrimax, and you can use that as building material. And they build roads in Puerto Rico. They built homes in Puerto Rico. This is the asbestos of the 21st century. If, I mean, someday we're going to look back and say, this, this is the asbestos uh, in many, many, many communities, mainly in the southern part of Puerto Rico, and San Juan is, is in the north. So in San Juan, it's, it's like, you know, what happens in the provinces stays in the provinces, right? So in 2014, the government uh, in Puerto Rico did a secret amendment to the, um, to the uh, contract, which allowed uh, AES 
to contract to dump the ashes in two of the of the the landfills in Puerto Rico. One of them is actually not far from where I live, and the other one is in a south uh, town called Peñuelas, which is also an area where we had the old petrochemical complexes and still dealing with a legacy of, of pollution. So uh, they filled up uh, the one near where I live, and they couldn't dump there anymore for a while. They started dumping in 2015 in the one in Peñuelas, but that community has been dealing with the legacy of contamination for many years. And they started the protest camps. They started doing civil disobedience. It became an issue. With this government, uh, the government agreed because there was a lot of pressure. And we've had a lot of arrests, a lot of civil disobedience. Today, there's actually a uh, trial in San Juan of the last group of people who were arrested there. So at this point... Um, the government of Puerto Rico has said, okay, we are going to uh, pass a law that prohibits the, uh, the dumping of the ash. But they inserted a little amendment at the last minute that was written by the company that said the ash is only what's dry. If you put water on it, it becomes agrimax. And so they are, they started again with the dumping. They've had to dump at night with 400 police to protect them, and there are still people protesting. So this is a big idea. Of course, they couldn't do anything during the, the hurricane. We found out that they uh, did not even bother to cover the mountain of ash that they have next to the plant. Who knows where this ash is right now? It's everywhere. It, we, it's had a Category 5 hurricane just come through. And so the, the struggle continues, la lucha continua. That is the story. And they've also said, oh, if you will not, you need our generating capacity because they have a plant. But they only generate maybe 11% of what we need. They close every time there's a problem. Our plants, those public plants, never close. We don't even need their plant because we, Puerto Rico has twice the generating capacity that it needs. And if we maintained everything, we would never need them. In fact, we don't need them now. Now, in yet another similarity with uh, contemporary Greece, there is where there is an activist movement that has sprung up surrounding the case of a student known as uh, Iriana, who is facing charges under uh, Greece's anti-terror laws for p participation in a uh, terror group. In Puerto Rico, there is the case of a political prisoner, Nina Droz. Why has she been imprisoned, and what are the similarity? What are the similarities, in your view, with the Iriana case? I think the main similarity has to do with uh, using a test case to see if you can turn the public against uh, this this person for for many reasons, and also to scare people to make them afraid to protest. Uh, specifically in the case of Nina Dross, who is a student, uh, was not really involved in any organized political activism. A student, a model, uh, uh, teaches also. Uh, she's a party girl, uh, lots of tattoos, you know, so there could be a lot of prejudice against her because of how she looks. In uh, May 1st, we had a massive demonstration in Puerto Rico against the Junta, against austerity, and most of us are against the colony, but some of us know that the real problem is not the Junta, the problem is that we're a colony. And it was a massive, massive uh, protest. 
uh, on one side, there was a group of their, uh, masked students or masked people, who knows who they were, in all dressed in black. And at one point, uh, many of the banks were actually um, boarded up and protected, except for our most important bank, Banco Popular de Puerto Rico. The um, nephew of the uh, head of Banco Popular is the president of the Junta. <laughs> so to give you an idea, they did not cover up their windows. And there was a moment where all the police withdrew, and then there's a group of people in mass who break the windows. There's no police around. According to some of the TV uh, coverage and some photos, there is a young woman who has since been identified as Nina, who is with an unidentified masked man. They are next to one of the windows on the sidewalk that's been busted. It looks like perhaps they're trying to light a piece of paper. You know, it with and nothing happens. But one of her feet is inside the bank. And based on that, the U.S. federal government says the other, there are some other people who were arrested, but they're all in the Puerto Rico system. And it says this one is in the U.S. system because she is inside the bank and the bank is involved in interstate commerce and that's federal you know, yes. So she has been charged in the um, in the media and by the federal court with a t conspiracy, attempted terrorism, uh, wanting to blow up this building with a little piece of paper that may or may not have had some fire on it. Uh, she has not had a trial. Her she was assigned a federal defense attorney who's in uh, a public attorney. There is a gag law against her attorney, so they cannot respond to anything in the media, and she has been demonized in the media. She is in the federal holding uh, court. Uh, she was originally she originally uh, uh, pled not guilty to all charges. After about two months, she agreed to a plea deal. I think she's agreed to plead guilty to conspiracy, which is very vague in, in, in uh, exchange for reduced charges. But she still has not been sentenced. And there have been issues such as, for example, uh, she was going to have her birthday. And so some of us were going to have a, a something outside of the prison with a sign, happy birthday, and, you know, just a little thing. And the prisoners can normally see that. Right before that, there was some infraction, who knows what was, and they put her in solitary. And she was in solitary for almost a month, was not given the, the reasons for it because there's a process and everything was delayed. And um, she's out of that now, but now they say she cannot have visitors, not even for her mother, if you can imagine that. Her mother can't visit her. She has still not been sentenced. The sentencing is supposed to be at the end of October. And even the... the um, the fiscal, the uh, the prosecuting, uh, said has, has suggested two years. The uh, her uh, attorneys have suggested one year, but the judge could give her more. You never know what what can happen. And evidently, she is not as obedient as they like in there. She's complained about things, and uh, the only reason we know anything about what's happening is she can receive letters. I, I myself have received a letter from her, and. Uh, she, there is a friend who is an attorney who is not her attorney, 
but she is able to visit her and able to talk a little bit about the situation with a lot of care. She's very care. I actually have talked to her before I came here to dis discuss what she thought I could talk about here in Greece. So when I heard about Iri the Iriana case, it struck me that, uh, I know there, dif there are differences, it struck me that it was simple, uh, sort of a criminalize her for supposed associations, alleged associations, which may or may not be true, and to use that to justify a very long sentence for a young woman who, basically, if she has to serve that whole sentence, that's a, a terrible, a terrible thing. And um, the same thing with Nina. Nina, her, her letter is wonderful to me. It made me cry when I received it. And she says, I... Um, we should never be afraid to speak up for justice, to speak up for what's right, and to give a voice to those who have no voice. And you can count on me to give my voice until the end of my days. So I just, you know, wanted to share that. I'm actually hoping maybe to have a, to buy a, a nice card here in, in Greece and have people sign and send. I don't know whether it'll get to her, but it might get to her. Because I, uh, people are writing to her, and um, we want to know that she is not, that she's not alone. You know, this is a, a little different situation from some of our early political prisoners who made many years in in organizations, and they had a very strong political formation, which enabled them to survive many years in prison. Nina doesn't have that background, but she's one of ours. Continuing this theme of uh, parallels between Greece and Puerto Rico, in Greece, the uh, the current ambassador of the United States, uh, Jeffrey Piat, was recently the U.S. ambassador to the Ukraine. In Puerto Rico, an individual by the name of Natalie Jaresko, who herself attained infamy in the Ukraine, is now the executive director of the uh, Junta in Puerto Rico. What is Jaresko's background and what is her role now in Puerto Rico? Natalie Jurezko was born in the United States and in Chicago of Ukrainian uh, parents. She is a graduate in economy at University of Chicago, which is infamous, the economics department there. Uh, she has worked at the U.S. State Department. She has uh, worked with um, the IMF. And we generally think she is a CIA asset. She's also a fellow at the Aspen Institute, and you could also see pictures of her with open Ukraine behind her. And that may ring some bells to some people, anything that's open society. Uh, she is uh, definitely accused of um, enriching her own company in the Ukraine from the privatization and sale of the telecommunications uh, network in the Ukraine. She was only there for only a couple of years. They gave her U Ukrainian citizenship, I think, within one day. <laughs> because when she, she was uh, named to be the finance minister right after the coup. So she was basically put in as the Ukraine's finance minister by the United States. And the little minor detail that she wasn't actually a Ukrainian citizen. So they gave her Ukrainian citizenship. So Natalie Jurezko, I guess, has uh, she still goes back and forth to the Ukraine and Part of her uh, her uh, contract with Puerto Rico is we pay for business class trips once a month from Puerto Rico to the Ukraine. Okay. So uh, she was uh, named by the by the junta to be the executive director, and now she is she knows or at least in the Ukraine she's Ukrainian background speaks Ukrainian. She knows nothing about Puerto Rico zero. 
she is there to, to do the same thing or worse in Puerto Rico that she did in the Ukraine. When I, when I wrote, write about her, I always say, Natalie Carnicera de Ucrania, Jaresko. That's Natalie Butcher of Ukraine, Jaresko. Uh, I just have to give you some of the terms of her contract. Her annual salary, and which we are paying for, $625,000 a year. That is more than $200,000 more than the President of the United States earns. To, to take that. Plus, she has all of her expenses. She has a private suite in, in a luxury hotel. She has an entire security detail and all of her communications. And plus, she has her nice uh, business trips to, to the Ukraine and anywhere else she wants to go. So in exchange for that, she basically comes in and says, well, you need to cut and slash, for example, the, the university uh, budget. Uh, the University of Puerto Rico needs to be more like the United States public universities. In other words, that uh, they sh we should slash the government's uh, share of the budget to United University, and students should all go into debt and become debt slaves like they are in the United States. It's relatively inexpensive. The University of Puerto Rico is an excellent, excellent university. It is the best university system with 11 campuses. Of course, they want to slash, cut all the campuses, right? Maybe two or three left. Um, much better than the private universities. And it is the vehicle for people, the best students in Puerto Rico, especially if they are poor, to get an education and to contribute to the future of Puerto Rico. They are an incredible resource, and it is also a very militant university. We, the students have had many strikes. They had one um, a few year, a few months ago. They shut it down for two months, and the issue was the cuts. They they it was interesting. They actually had a personal meeting with the junta face-to-face -face that lasted all day about all these, which is something that the, that the government of Puerto Rico has not even had. The students managed to do that, and they actually have a, a term, a list of, of, of demands, none of which have been uh, put forth, but just to give you an idea, Natalie Jaresco has also said that um, I am here to help Puerto Rico, you need to listen to me, I'm going to do, cut everything, by the, by the way, the, uh, the governor of Puerto Rico says we are not going to hurt the most vulnerable. They never identify who are the most vulnerable. The PROMESA bill says essential services must be protected. They are never defined what are essential services. And, and this is the, the, uh, she also has a, they also have a, um, hired a special security detail and they are lobbying to to expand the new criminalization law to further criminalize protest against the junta. So this is give you an idea of what the, the butcher of Ukraine wants to do in, in, in Puerto Rico. Now let's turn to the hot-button issue of Puerto Rico's political status. Uh, a few months ago, we saw a non-binding referendum on statehood take place uh, in an issue which, from uh, what I understand, remains extremely divisive in uh, Puerto Rico and parallels the debate that we see in Greece regarding continued membership in the European Union. Describe for us the, the current state of affairs regarding the island's political status and the political divisions in Puerto Rico today. 
Well, as, as I've spoken with you before and been published before, Puerto Rico is a, a colony, is an unincorporated territory belonging to but not a part of the United States. That is its official designation. According to the Supreme Court, we do not even have the limited sovereignty of an Indian tribe. Let me give you an example. And so, uh, and the United Nations have been trying for many years to get it on the agenda of the General Assembly. It have not managed to do so. They're going to try again this year on the 19th of September. I think there are major demonstrations. And it has been extremely divisive because uh, the issue of independence has been demonized and criminalized in, for many, many years in Puerto Rico. There have been many, many uh, uh, imprisonments. There have been many deaths. There have been many disappearances. Uh, many people have, were unable to find work. And so many people, most people in Puerto Rico are either very afraid of it or they believe that we have no chance. We need to uh, depend on the United States where most uh, Puerto Ricans are not quite knowledgeable about our own history. So it's, it's a long series. But at the same time, uh, there is uh, one of the major parties is a party that says, well, our current status is okay if we can increase our autonomy. And the other major party, which is currently in power, says, no, we need equality. We need to become a state, the 51st state of the United States. And then there's a smaller uh, party, and then many people who do not vote at all, who says, well, we, without independence, we can't even begin to have this conversation because we don't have control of our own, of our own, you know, affairs. So that is basically, we, Puerto Rico has had five referendums since the 1960s, actually, about our political status. None of them are binding. The U.S. Congress has never uh, committed to, to respecting the results. The last one was in June. And I actually wrote a, an article that was published in, in, in Greece uh, in March that the interesting thing about that particular uh, a proposal, that there would be only two a, a options. One was statehood, and the other was some kind of sovereignty. Now, that's a, kind of a loaded term because it's not always understood, but many independent uh, supporters thought, well, this might be an opportunity if we can actually have a very good showing of people who reject statehood and want some kind of sovereignty, some that we might be able to push something. So many people who include and even don't vote were going to register. Well, at one point, the uh, Attorney General of the United States, Jeff Sessions, said to the governor of Puerto Rico, well, in order to have this referendum, you also need to include the current status. Now, this is a, a referendum for the decolonization of Puerto Rico. That's the name of it. And he said one of the options has to be to remain a colony. So you de you're one of your options to decolonize is to stay the way you are. The government said, okay. And with that, all of the pro-independence, pro-sovereignty people of all of so forget it, we're boycotting. Then the other major party that wants the current status with autonomy also boycotted. So then you had in June, only one party was represented, the pro-statehood party. No more than 23% of the voters even voted. And because there was no oversight by the other parties, 
it may have been even less than 23%. And what, 97% of the voters voted in favor of statehood. So with that, the government went to Congress and he said, 97% of the voters uh, want statehood. They were completely ignored. Then they, they chose seven people and they said, well, here are our congressmen and we're sending them anyway. <laughs> and they're completely ignored, but they're spending Puerto Rican public money that we supposedly don't have. And they're all sitting in Washington. I'm not sure what they're doing there. I mean, probably eating well and staying in a nice hotel, but Congress is completely ignoring them. They said, oh, we're going to meet with President Trump. Okay. As far as I know, there has been no meeting. So we have not solved any problem. Everything is exactly the way it was, except that they spent $10 million of money that we don't have on the stupid referendum. Now, within the context of the economic crisis, the broader economic crisis uh, that Puerto Rico is experiencing, has the independence movement been able to gain any traction? That's, that's always an interesting question. It's, it's not really easy to, to, to answer. Uh, one of the problems is that the independence movement, the left in general, is extremely divided. We have many, many little groups. Uh, people spend a lot of time, for example, on Facebook attacking each other. It's very tiring. Although we have a meeting of, or sometimes we'll have meetings, we'll have protests, and people do show up together, so, you know. But the interesting thing is it's not easy to say if we have support for independence or more support for independence. What I can say is maybe there is more understanding that the United States is not going to help us, as, as if they ever did, that perhaps they, we need to figure out some way of not waiting for them to rescue us or to give us better power or to give us statehood. And the other thing is because of what's visibly happening in the United States, it's always been happening, but the visible, uh, attacks the visible oppression that is now getting a lot of of media attention throughout the world people are, are starting to believe that well even if we became a state we're still uh spanish speaking we are still uh to large extent we are of african descent how is it for the blacks and the latinos who live in in the united states they have statehood do they have equality you know, so it's, it's beginning to open up things a little more. The, the, the problem that we have is the question of getting rid of our own colonized mentalities, our colonized minds. I think that's probably our biggest, our biggest challenge. And to be, and to not just speak to ourselves, the people on the left, the people, but to speak to our neighbors, to talk about this. And I constantly talking to my neighbors, none of whom are independence activists, but they always want to ask me what I think about what's going on. So, to give you an idea. Now, one of the biggest stories of the past few months in Puerto Rico is the release of Oscar Lopez Rivera, who was imprisoned in the United States for 34 years. He was granted clemency by President Obama in the last days of his administration. Oscar is now back in Puerto Rico. What has the response been to his release and his repatriation? And what has he been doing since his release? Well, Oscar has been physically 
uh, free. He's been spiritually free for, I think, for a very long time, freer than many people I know. But he's been physically free uh, without restrictions since the 17th of May. Uh, there has been a tremendous, overwhelming response among, among Puerto Ricans to him, to his release, uh, to, to basically being around him. He is a really very, uh, to, to be around him. I've been around a lot of political prisoners, and uh, many of them, it takes a long time to adjust. And his adjustment, I mean, he may have some adjustment to do that you don't see, but you meet him in person. Uh, the smile, the, the, the hugs, he is very, very physical with everyone uh, for very good reasons. He is constantly talking about unity. He is talking, talking about uh, decolonizing. He is constantly asked to speak. So he has been not only speaking in very in, in many activities in Puerto Rico, but also in, for example, in the United States. He is he wants to thank communities in all around, also in the world, also for 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 uh, supporting him and for campaigning for him. So he has been in many many uh, activities. He was also a, went to Nicaragua was uh, at a conference and uh, President Ortega gave him the highest uh, recognition of uh, of Nicaragua. He is scheduled to visit Cuba in uh, in, uh, in Cuba in in November and of course they were very very active in 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 uh, working for his release as well as release of, of earlier prisoners. So he is making a lot of the rounds still. It's still only a few months. His plan, actually, he is, is trying to set up a foundation to give him a little bit of independence so that he can work in Puerto Rico. He was a community organizer before his, his imprisonment. He wants to do that in Puerto Rico, and he says he specifically wants to, to work on alternatives, community-based alternatives, which are already existing, but to unify. And he wants to unify the the various activists unify the people of Puerto Rico, speak to the people who are not necessarily activists, and to break through this division that we have. And he has the the stature to force people to at least listen. I can't wait. I mean, he's still. I'm. A, you know, some of us are a little impatient. We want to do this already, but he's still. He's still speaking on many occasions, and it's um. Sometimes it's difficult to uh, to contact him because uh, he has some people helping him because he will never say no to anybody. So some of the people who are helping him are trying to shield him a little bit. It's a, it's a little it's a little bit of a coming out process, so to speak. Yes. Now there's a famous quote from uh, Oscar Lopez Rivera concerning the struggle for independence, the anti-colonial struggle, uh, which, which according to him, begins with the decolonization of the mind. You mentioned that a moment ago. How are these words relevant in the present day, both for Puerto Rico and also even for Greece, even if Greece is a country that is nominally independent? I, I think part of the problem with the decolonizement, uh, a colonized mentality is that you begin, the, the one who is colonized, begins to believe the lies that have been told by the colonizer, that we are inferior, that we are backward, that we would be poor, we would be, we would have no hope if it was not for a more developed, more civilized, more powerful uh, entity for the United States Empire, for, for the Northern Europe, for, for Germany, for the European, for the European Union, for example. That we need to be developed, we need to be advanced, 
We need to be more like them and less like the, the, the global south. I mean, we are part, Puerto Rico is without a doubt part of the global south. But to get that idea that we need for them to help us because we cannot help ourselves. We should not depend on ourselves because look how advanced they are. Look how, how happy they are. Look how, how, how well off they are, even if it's not true, you know. And if we believe that, it's very difficult to do any of this. We won't believe that we can make decisions on our own. We won't demand our sovereignty because we will think that we're not capable of making those decisions by ourselves. There was, for many years, uh, we were told, oh, if you were in independent, Puerto Rico would be like Haiti. I think that is, of course, uh, completely ignores that Haiti, which is nominally independent, is is under military occupation, which a, a, a benefits a very small oligarchy and keeps everyone else poor. If Haiti really could could uh, uh, take sovereignty for itself and, and for the, you would see a different Haiti, you know. But I'm just, but that's but that's what they say to us. There's also the issue of. We are not a European people. We have some European ancestry from the colonizers, right? But we are mainly not a European people. We are a Latin American, Caribbean, African, indigenous people with a very long history. We didn't start our history when Columbus came. We have a history that goes back 7,000 years. And it's a, we have a lot of information about it, okay? So we could draw on that and also our, our own history, our own uh, history as Latin American people, we are under a lot of isolation. Everyone knows about the blockade that the United States has like a Cuba, Cuba. And, but we have one also. It's different. It's very difficult for us to have direct contact, direct trade with the rest of the world. We have to do everything through the United States. And so we are isolated. I've had many people in Greece says, I don't know the story. Why have I never heard the story? I said, well, you haven't heard the story because it's a blockaded story. It's a blockaded history. It's one of the reasons that I'm here. And I think the, the colonized mind is our biggest, uh, our biggest obstacle. I have seen that when we work together and we fight against the oppressor, the oppressor uh, cannot stand against that. So that's our biggest, I think it's, it's, it's a bigger problem than U.S. military might or anything else that they can threaten us with. Now, the anti-colonial and independence movements that we've seen across the world, including those back in the 1960s and 1970s, were by and large nationalist movements. Today, though, we see arguments from many who associate nationalism with fascism, with racism, with xenophobia. How do you view the issue, and do you believe that nationalism can be compatible with internationalism and a more cooperative or progressive uh, worldview? Well, it's a very, this is a very interesting question. I've had this conversation with many people. I know that in Europe, there is a specific historical context of nationalism and fascism. I understand that. But the interesting thing, and particularly in Latin America, the issue of nationalism has to do with national sovereignty, of controlling our own destiny, making our own decisions, and not allowing the imperialist uh, or neo-imperialist 
to make those decisions, whether it's uh, a European power or whether it's the United States or whether it's, it's another country, for example. So in the context of Latin America, nationalism has been, there is, there is a nationalism that is called anti-imperialist nationalism. There is a tremendous amount of literature. It is, it, it is a not a nationalism that says we are better than everyone and we want to control others. We want to control ourselves. Puerto Rico has a, had a very long history with the Nationalist Party. It, it's a very small right now and not very active. It was tremendously repressed. We are great martyr, Dr. Albizu Campos. Pedro Albizu Campos was, uh, was martyred, uh, really, literally. He was the leader of the Nationalist Party. He, his politics, his economic, you say my social democrat, more or less. But the, one of the main leaders was also Juan Antonio Correjer, who was a communist. So, it, it, the, those, there are some revisionist historians who want to say that he was fascist, and there is no evidence for that. And I just want to share something very interesting. Uh, only a few months ago, I was in Cuba, and we had this conversation, because I had, I had my conversations in Greece in mind when we had this conversation. And um, the per people who I was talking to as well, of course, you will never find people more nationalist than Cubans. We love our country. We want to keep our culture. We want to defend our country against outside uh, uh, control. But we are internationalists. We want other countries to be able to defend their own sovereignty as well. We want to have relationships of mutual respect. And that, for them is nationalism. And they also say we understand there is a different history in Europe. But I think I think we need to rescue this word. And now I am seeing with the the, uh, the um, very open uh, racist attacks in the United States. I have heard some European friends say, oh, well, fascism is coming to the United States. I said, no, that's not exactly what you're saying. You're seeing white supremacy, which is the founding principle of the United States because a settler colonizer, it's a European settler colonizer regime that destroyed many indigenous nations. And it maintains power through white supremacy. That's not necessarily the same as fascism. And I believe in the word fascist, it's thrown around a lot. And we're not talking about the, the actual, you know, the, the states and the, the alliance of the states and the private industry and the oligarchy. That seems to be lost a little bit. So that's, you know, it's a conversation I think that's very important because uh, I believe also in Puerto Rico, because sometimes there are people who have read a lot of, uh, of literature from, from Europe and they start saying, well, I'm not, I don't care about independence because as nationalists, I care more about socialism. Okay, so, okay, but if we're not independent, how are we going to be socialists? You, you know, as a colony or a state of the United States, are you expecting to be socialist? Are you expecting the communist ideal this way? It's not, it's less likely, I would say. And so I, I think it's important to have this conversation in Greece as well. Now, this is the third consecutive year that you're visiting Greece. Uh, you'll be making a public appearance in Greece, if I'm not mistaken. What has brought you back to the country for a third time, and uh, where will you be speaking? What will you be speaking about? 
Well, I'm, I'm very happy that uh, the um, I have been invited back to to uh, to speak at the Resistance Festival, which will be the 29th and the 30th of September at the at the Fine Arts uh, University, the Fine Arts School. I'm very very happy to be to be uh, working together with Dromosti uh, Saristeras, the wonderful uh, uh, weekly, which I've also been able to 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 uh, send some. Updates on Puerto Rico, which was very, very active in the campaign to free Oscar. Uh, for me, uh, we've talked about this before. I have a lifelong interest and affinity with Greece. I do have some Greece, uh, Greek ancestry. This is going way back, you know. But uh, I, it's been a lifelong interest, a lifelong uh, appreciation of the popular culture, the music, and. Um, of course, with the, the issue of the austerity, with the resistance, with what happened with the Troika, uh, I immediately saw the similarities with what was happening with Puerto Rico. And then when they start calling Puerto Rico is the Greece of the Caribbean, it's a very superficial way that you use it in the news, but there is a deeper truth there. Sometimes in my, in my writings, I've talked about Greece as the Puerto Rico of the Mediterranean, <laughs> because I, I, I think we can learn from each other. I'm hoping to to increase the solidarity, to increase learning about each other. At first, it was really just me. I kind of had this idea. You and I have spoken about this for several years and uh, made some comments. Now, there's starting to be more interest. There are a couple of organizations in Puerto Rico who have contacted me to try to bring some people to speak from Greece. And I, there is more interest here. There are a number of different organizations who are now trying to make contact with me. I am open to speak anywhere with anyone in English, in Spanish. I'm learning Greek. I'm still not speaking very well, but I'm reading more and I'm, you know, I'm hoping at some point to be able to speak well enough to be able to, to present if we have someone come from Greece who does not have Spanish or English, hopefully I can, I know enough to be able to, 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 to help with that. But, um, I am hoping that we can continue this collaboration. We continue solidarity. Maybe we can have young people from both countries to visit each other, cultural exchange. And with the idea of supporting each other's struggle uh, uh, for for a just society, for the ability to take care of ourselves and to stop this continued bleeding of our countries, the continued bleeding of our people where our young people feel they need to leave. We don't, I don't want to see a Greece without Greeks. I don't want to see a Puerto Rico without Puerto Ricans. So in closing, is there any other message that you would like to share with our uh, Greek and international audience? Let's see. Moresi poli cucina polis Thank you very much for returning to Greece and for returning to uh, the Alagos Radio and for uh, taking the time to, uh, to speak with us today. Thank you.